So we're going to cover a couple of topics is correlation and uh, ethics. So correlation. What, uh, what does it bring to mind when you think of something as uh, co-related? They're similar. They could be. They're interrelated. Good. What else? Um, yeah, in a lot of ways. What's really important about um, correlation is you have two dependent variables. In a correlation, remember, there's never going to be uh, an independent variable because you're never going to be manipulating something. You're just looking at a relationship that exists. So two dependent variables uh, which vary systematically. What do you think in this context, what does systematically imply? That they're somehow together? But in some, in think about negative correlations, they're actually moving apart. What's that? That there's a pattern, yeah. So there's some sort of discernible pattern here that we can detect. A system, remember? A system that's predictable, maybe. Maybe we can actually do prediction with correlation. Um, so we talk about two kinds of correlation. Positive correlations where uh, these two variables are going to be changing in the same direction. Okay? So when one goes higher, the other goes higher. Or when one goes lower, the other goes lower. So when you think about, for example, IQ and GPA, this is the classic example of positive correlations. Uh, if I were to measure um, the IQ of everybody at PCC, and measure their GPA, I would find a positive correlation. I'm not sure how strong it would be, but there would be a positive correlation. People who have higher IQs tend to have higher GPAs. People who have higher GPAs tend to have higher IQs. So um, that's all that you can say from that, right? A negative correlation means that these two variables vary systematically but now they're going in opposite directions. When one goes higher, the other goes lower. And the classic example here, like if I were to take fifth graders and measure their uh, television watching, number of hours they spend television watching, and their grades, I would find a negative correlation. The more television watching hours they do, the lower their grades will be. Yeah. Um, no, actually, turns out not to be the case. Um, so you're looking for cause. You're looking for the idea that television, you know, a particular kind of television might not have this effect. But we don't see that kind of causal relationship here. All we can say is that um, kids who have lower grades spend more time watching television. Does that mean their lower grades cause them to watch TV more? Probably, it doesn't mean that. It could be. It could be that they, you know, they get bad grades, they're depressed, they go home and sit in front of the TV and veg out because they don't, you know, they're all worried about school. That's probably not the case, though. 
Uh, does it mean that watching a lot of TV causes lower grades? Not necessarily. Um, so in order to determine that causal relationship, we would have to take one of these variables and turn it into an independent variable that we could manipulate. So if we could randomly assign children at birth to watching a particular number of hours of television every day, um, we could find a causal relationship perhaps, but even then it's a little sketchy. So yeah, so that's the deal. Now, what's the, um, uh, so again, the, the whole issue here is that correlation indicates that there's an association between these two variables, but there's no causal relationship. I mean, it doesn't have to be a causal relationship. It's possible that there's a causal relationship, but we can't determine that from simply a correlation. So in a correlation, what are the maximum and minimum possible values? What's that? Nope, not infinity. Plus one to negative one. So a positive correlation and a negative correlation. And in the middle is zero. What does zero indicate? There's no systematic relationship at all. So if I were to go in here and I was going to measure two variables for you, let's say I was going to measure your hair color and your uh, um, and your favorite color. I don't know. I might get I might actually get a correlation, but it's probably not the case. Most likely, hold on a second. Most likely what I'll get is, this isn't a good example. Let me change this. I want something quantitative rather than qualitative. Um, let's say um, I were to measure your height and your uh, GPA. Um, here's what I would probably get. Each of these dots is um, one of you. And depending on how high you are on height and how high you are in GPA is where you are. So this person is here on height. Oops, I'll put an X there. And here on GPA, right? This person is taller and has a slightly higher GPA. This person is taller and has a slightly lower GPA. And when I see a cloud of points like this on what's called a scatter plot, this is called a scatter plot when you plot each individual value on the axes, uh, this looks like a zero correlation, right? There's no pattern in the data. But what if I started to see something like this. <laughs> so that gets closer to a positive correlation. I don't, it's going to be closer to 1.00. It's certainly moving from 0.00 to 1.00. Hold on, I got three questions here before I keep going. Um, and um, but it's not 1.00. 
because there's only one possible line that the dots could fall on for a 1.00, and that would be that one. You couldn't have any of these here at all. So the more dots you get that are off of that line, that what's called a regression line of plus 1.00, the more dots you get, the lower this value goes. I don't know. Right? And you get more out here. Now it keeps going down. So on and so forth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I kind of you can, but it, it you have to do a chi square and it gets weird. Yeah. Adrian. Oh, I just I put a zero there, but I but I realized that it should be an x. You really what you want to put here is y because that's the y axis, but it doesn't matter. It's just a variable. Yeah. Yeah, a perfect one is essentially a slope of, what would it be, one? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, essentially that's what the regression line is, a slope line. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what would a negative correlation look like? Flip it about 90 degrees and you get something more like this. That would be a pretty good negative correlation. Okay. Pretty straightforward stuff. Um, ethics. When we do research, one of the things that we need to do is to make sure that we follow ethical procedures. Why? So we don't get sued for one thing. That's a very valid point. Um, but aside from that, other than that, yeah. So um, we can, yeah, you could say that ethics contribute to better results, but although that's not really necessarily true, yeah. So you don't mess, so it's the right thing to do. Um, yeah, what else? Excellent. That's really why we do it. You know, we're not doing it because we're humanitarians and wonderful people. If we could, if I could do experiments like Zimbardo and Milgram did, I would do them, but just because I like to mess with people, right? But I need people to trust me so that they'll come into my lab the next time and do my experiment the next time. So that's one of the main reasons, plus liability. Plus, um, if you want to uh, publish your research, you have to pass it through what's called an institutional research board or, in, or an institutional review board. And the IRB is responsible for looking at your research design and making sure that it isn't going to harm people, that it maintains their dignity, that animals are taken care of and fed and um, treated well, right? Um, and once it passes the IRB, um, one of the things that the IRB is going to uh, insist that you do is make sure that the participants know of any risks 
or other consequences, maybe even benefits of the research that they're going to participate in. So what that does is it makes the participants more informed so that they can make a better decision about whether or not they want to be part of the research, right? If I go into a research project and they say one of the potential risks is that you'll lose the ability to speak, um, I'll be going, uh, maybe I don't want to do that, right? Um, and then once uh, the participants are made aware of that, then the experimenter obtains informed consent. So that's what those informed consent forms were all about. And the project information statement at the beginning made you aware of the risks and consequences of the research that you're going to be participating in here, that we're going to be doing today, actually. And so that uh, form that you signed, and I gave you back a copy of that, because that's part of the protocol for uh, informed consent, is to give people back a copy of their signed informed consent form. Um, after, the ex after the experiment, we're also obliged to give you some sort of idea um, about what the experiment was about, and that's called debriefing. Um, telling people, for example, if you had to deceive them, uh, telling people you had to deceive them and why you had to deceive them, that it was necessary for what reason. Uh, telling them a little bit about the hypothesis you were looking at, what you were hoping to find, what the possible uh, outcome of this research might be maybe even sending them the, the results after uh, the experiment is over. And then you also need to take care of them after the experiment if you've somehow harmed them, right? Basically, the, the idea is you need to put them back the way you found them, is the way I like to put it. You know, they come to you in a particular state, and if you leave them in some other condition, it's not really ethical. If somebody comes to me and I have to use some sort of deception methods in my experiment and they get really upset that they had been deceived and lied to, uh, I'm going to have to make sure that they're okay. You know, maybe that's going to trigger some sort of underlying psychological problem that they had and I'm going to have to follow up with them. An example of this is when I did my uh, senior thesis research as an undergraduate. I had to, one of the ways, I had to stress people out because I was measuring the effect of stress on uh, a couple of variables. And I had to, uh, a universal stressor for people is to tell them uh, that they're going to have to give a public speech. That freaks almost everybody out. So basically, um, I told them, you know, um, as part of this experiment, you'll need to give a speech in front of a classroom of uh, your fellow students. Uh, on a topic that I'll give you in about five minutes, and you'll have a few minutes to prepare for it. People just like go, ah. And, um, you know, I was obliged if I knew one of them was made upset by that, you know, was really stressed out, you know, I saw that they were sweating or they were trembling and they left the experiment in not very good shape, I actually did make some follow-up phone calls and say, hey, um, just want to make sure that everything's okay, you know, let you know the experiment finished up and here's what we found and um, yeah. And if they go, uh, you know what, I'm having nightmares and flashbacks about the experiment, then I'm going to talk to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and go, hey, we need to get involved with this person because there's some problems here, right? Yeah. Questions? Ideas?
Open research ethics, scientific method, yeah. Yes, um, that's a good question. Uh, the ethical principles change every so often. We've gone through about four or five revisions of the code of ethics. Um, the, there was a code of ethics in place in 1968 um, that was developed in 1968 that was in place when uh, Zimbardo did his experiment. You're talking about Zimbardo or Milgram? Zimbardo, yeah, uh, where they did the prison experiment. Yeah, um, and he went through an IRB. Uh, he went through informed consent. He did everything he needed to do. Um, but, you know, the outcome of the research was considered important enough at the time by the IRB and by him that it was worth um, putting these people through stress. He obviously went way overboard ethically. He did things that, we shouldn't have, that he shouldn't have done, and uh, he knows that now. Yeah. If I had time, I would show you some video clips from that experiment, but I'm running short on time. Okay. So, yeah. Let me uh, move on now to Chapter 3, which is mostly going to... Uh, we're going to be mostly talking today about the nervous system, and then we're going to be doing our psychophysiology lab, uh, looking at actually how we can measure, bless you, how we can measure the action of the nervous system. So um, first of all, let me give you a rundown of how we organize our thinking about the nervous system. We tend to organize it in kind of a hierarchical form. Um, and the way that hierarchical form is that there are two uh, parts to, the, uh, to your overall nervous system. Excuse me. The central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. And the central nervous system also has two parts. And what are those? The brain and the spinal cord. Yeah, that's all there is to the central nervous system. The peripheral nervous system itself has two parts the somatic and the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system itself has two parts, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's arranged in a hierarchy of, of pairs, of twos, right? That's, one, that's the way I kind of remember it. And it kind of goes from higher level behavior, higher level thinking, to lower level behaviors and lower level thinking. More automatic, more voluntary. Okay? So let's talk about the peripheral nervous system. I mentioned the somatic nervous system, and the somatic nervous system uh, is going to be responsible for a couple of things. First, it helps to get information uh, from our sense receptors, you know, your touch receptors, for example, in your hand, that information has to travel to your central nervous system so you can perceive it and then figure out what you're going to do with it. Uh, 
And that kind of gets at the idea of what the peripheral nervous system is about. Those of you who are familiar with computers, um, how would you define a peripheral on a computer? Something that interfaces with what? It, it's out, it's out away from, yeah, like your printer, your monitor, keyboard, maybe a hard, yeah, it could be your hard drives, right? These are things that are peripheral. They're on the outside of what? Of the computer unit itself, usually, the CPU, unless you have an iMac and it's all built into one thing, right? Um, but um, generally, or, you know, like my, my laptop. But still, even with my laptop, the CPU, the brain in this thing, uh, is separate, and it communicates with all this stuff outside, the keyboard, the monitor, things I'm attaching to it, right? So similarly, the peripheral nervous system is outside of that central nervous system. It's outside the brain and the spinal cord. It's everything that connects to it. The second type of nerves that we have in the somatic system are called uh, efferent nerves, which are uh, nerves that carry information uh, from to and from our voluntary muscles to the central nervous system. I'm sorry, carry information from the central nervous system to the muscles. The so afferent goes into the central nervous system. Efferent goes out of the central nervous system. These nerves don't go two ways. They always go in one direction. Right? So that's the somatic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is all about what's called homeostasis, which is a fancy word for saying what? Balance. Keeping balance, keeping you alive, yeah, really. Um, yeah, keeping things in balance. So think about your uh, body's uh, temperature regulation, right? Your temperature regulation has to be not too hot and not too cold. And so your body is constantly going through these changes to manipulate your temperature so it's not too hot or too cold. You get too hot, you sweat. That cools off your uh, skin and that cools your blood and your, your internal core temperature goes down. Uh, your body gets too cold and what do you do? You, you shiver, yeah, and that's a way to generate heat. Yeah, you put on a coat. That's operant conditioning, and we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, keeping things in homeostasis, particularly as it involves involuntary kinds of processes. So the autonomic nervous system isn't so much involved in reaching and putting on your coat. In fact, that it's the somatic nervous system that's going to be doing that. But rather um, making sure that your bodily functions are all working properly uh, in relationship to each other and keeping things in balance. Now, as I said, there are two parts to the autonomic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system, which you should think of as being the activating part of the autonomic nervous system. This is the one that gets things going, right? This is the one that's involved with uh, if I'm walking 
if I'm if I go on a hike, I'm walking down the trail and I see this thing on four legs and ears and teeth, sharp teeth and it's got a glint in its eye and I'm like, uh, I don't think I want to tangle with this thing. My autonomic nervous system kicks in and it prepares me to do what? Get the hell out of there. Or to take it on. <laughs> Come on, bring it on. Right? No, I run. Um, so that's the activate. The sympathetic nervous system gets you going, gets you ready to respond to some threat. Right? Um, but it doesn't have to be that kind of threat either. So when, you know, you like somebody and you decide you're going to ask them on a date and you get the, you know, get nervous and you start to sweat and that kind of thing, that's your autonomic nervous system kicking in, your sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. The people that I told they had to give a speech to, um, yeah, their autonomic nervous system kicked in and, you know, some of them were shaking. Yeah. Adrenaline starts going, right? The parasympathetic nervous system is the balance to the, uh, to the uh, sympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system brings everything back down, right? It calms things down, chills you out. So, uh, you know, after I uh, successfully run away from the mountain lion on the trail uh, and I'm in a safe place, I start to kind of come down a little bit, right? You know, I'll go through a period when I'll actually, like, shake and be anxious and nervous, but I'll eventually calm down. Your body does really interesting things to uh, keep you alive. Um, yeah, endorphins would be released during the sympathetic phase. Yeah, because uh, you have to be able to... You know, think about it, and to survive, sometimes you have to go through pain to get away from something that is going to hurt you. And so endorphins are those natural painkillers that allow you to still function while you're in pain. Yeah. Or, you know, if you get bitten by the thing, right? You can't just, you know, curl up and writhe in pain. you got to get out of there, right? So... Um, And then, you know, similarly, if, you know, you ask that cute person on a date and they go, yeah, I'd love to. And then, like, after you get over the shock that you actually, they actually said yes, then you, you like, you start to calm down. That's your parasympathetic nervous system kicking in, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's the peripheral nervous system. Talked about the central nervous system. Let's go down uh, another level here now. Um, let's get into a little bit of the more detail about how nerves themselves work, how neurons themselves are structured, and how they function. So when you think of um, neuron anatomy, um, think of it as having really three major divisions, the body of the neuron, the axon, and the dendrites. If it weren't for this, the axon and the dendrites, a neuron would be like every other cell in your body, right? It's got a, uh, it's got a membrane, it's got a cell membrane that's filled with cytoplasm. And inside that cytoplasm are the nucleus, this part in the middle, 
and then all of the other organelles that all the other cells in your body have. So if you took high school biology or college biology, you're well familiar, hopefully, with the idea of organelles. These are specialized uh, parts of cells that do particular functions. So the mitochondria um, is responsible for metabolism and energy production in the cell, lysosomes, ribosomes. Um, the only real difference is the Golgi complex. And in neurons particularly, the Golgi complex is responsible for the production of what are called vesicles. And we'll talk about vesicles later. There's also a Golgi complex in the uh, axon too. Uh, so in the axon, the deal with the axon is that at the end of the axon is what's called the presynaptic terminal or what your book calls the axon terminal. Okay, And that's where neurotransmitters are released, which are the chemicals that these neurons use to communicate from one to the other, send a signal from one to the other. Some of those axons are myelinated, and that's what these puffy uh, parts on the diagram are. That's uh, supposed to indicate myelinated uh, axons. And um, the myelin sheath actually insulates the axon so that an electrical charge inside the axon can travel much faster. It doesn't dissipate as, as quickly, and so uh, it can go faster through the axon. So longer axons, for example, you've got a really long axon that goes down your leg. Um, those are myelinated. Shorter axons may not need to be myelinated, although the very short axons in your brain are, for the most part, myelinated, um, because that's, that needs really fast processing, right? Um, the dendrites, the thing with the dendrites, these things that are hanging off the ends here, is that uh, they have what's called the postsynaptic terminal. Um, and um, that is actually activated by the neurotransmitter that's released by the presynaptic terminal. So what's between the presynaptic terminal and the postsynaptic terminal? Hmm. Well, I would just say in general, the, 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 synap the synapse itself, the gap in between, yeah. Yeah, postsynaptic cleft, huh? Well, you got me on that one. I'll have to, I'll have to um, check that out. So the postsynaptic terminal gets the neurotransmitter signal. It gets picked up here. Then it gets passed into the cell body down the axon to here. This generates neurotransmitters. They hop over to the dendrites on the next neuron, so on and so forth, right? Okay, questions on that? Okay, so um, let's take a look in a little more detail in how 
this process really works, this neurotransmission process, um, and talk a little bit about that. Um, oh, we're going to talk about neurotransmitters first. Sorry. So I was talking about the idea that neurotransmitters are released by the presynaptic terminal and then picked up by the postsynaptic terminal. The thing about neurotransmitters is they don't come out of thin air. They're actually produced in the neuron itself. Um, some of them are produced in the body of the neuron. Some of them are produced uh, in the terminal. But um, in any event, they come from what are called precursor chemicals, chemicals that the neuron gets from its environment to make, to synthesize the neurotransmitters, okay? Um, and typically, these uh, precursor chemicals come from the food we eat. Gets digested, those products go into the bloodstream, the bloodstream carries it to the, to the neuron, the neuron picks it up out of the bloodstream and uses the chemicals to make neurotransmitters. So, you know, you are what you eat is not that far off. <laughs> At least your behavior is partly what you eat. Uh, think about, for example, on Thanksgiving, right? You have a lot of protein, a lot of turkey, a lot of carbohydrates, you know, a lot of stuffing, mashed potatoes, yum. And then you get sleepy, right? You want to just take a nap. Well, it's partly because you're eating a lot, but it's also because um, the protein that you're eating, the meat protein you're eating, has um, a, a chemical called uh, tryptophan, right? And the tryptophan, in combination with the carbohydrates, forms a precursor chemical that's going to be used to make serotonin, which is a very calming neurotransmitter, has a calming effect in your brain. So, um, so yeah, that your eating is a pr your behavior then is a product of your eating, really. The choices you're making in uh, your food consumption, yeah. And of course, drugs um, can supply precursor chemicals also. Um, so now, once these neurotransmitters are produced, and as I said, they're typically produced in the cell body, and then they have to travel down the axon and wind up in the axon terminal. And what happens is they're stored in these um, sort of globs, these sort of globes, these spheres, I guess you could say, of, um, that are called vesicles. And those vesicles, remember I said, are made by the Golgi complex in the, neuro, in the neuron. And the Golgi complex makes these vesicles that bundles up these molecules of neurotransmitters and takes them to the axon terminal, and they sit there waiting to be used. And what's going to happen is um, there's going to be a stimulation that's going to come down the axon, an electrical charge going to come down the axon. It's going to meet up with the um, presynaptic terminal's membrane, the outside of the presynaptic terminal. And when that uh, action potential gets to the terminal, the vesicles that are nearest to the uh, membrane are going to fuse with the membrane and that's going to allow the neurotransmitters to go out into the synapse. And once they're in the synapse, then they can activate the um, postsynaptic terminal, the dendrite, right? 
Okay. Let's take a look at the actual action potential process itself, because your book explains it, but it's a little bit um, confusing, I think. It's a lot easier if you can see it happening or if I can help explain it to you. Um, one of the things that's important here is the idea that the axon maintains something called a resting potential. And what that means is these are little minus signs, these yellow minus signs, and these are little plus signs, and the blue dashed line is the um, membrane of the axon, okay? So what that means is the inside of the axon is more negatively charged with respect to the outside of the axon in relationship to the outside of the axon, somewhere in the range of minus uh, 70 millivolts. So it's a really small amount of electrical charge. But what that electrical charge wants to do is equalize, right? It wants to pull those positive ions. These are positive ions. These are negative ions. It wants to pull that positive charge into the inside and equalize it. It's called an electrical gradient, right? And that electrical gradient wants to be resolved, but this membrane is keeping that from happening. Until, uh, uh, until I say... I say, I say, until um, there is some sort of stimulation at the axon hillock. And the axon hillock is the point at which the body of the neuron, you got dendrites coming off, right, meets the uh, axon. So this is called the axon hillock. And so we get these uh, dendrites being stimulated. There, there's a charge at the axon hillock. And if it reaches what's called threshold, a particular level of charge that's strong enough, it'll trigger then an action potential. And the action potential then starts pulling those uh, positive ions into the inside of the axon. And now this is getting more positively charged with respect to the outside, right? So we've got a, now um, a chemical and electrical process that's going to start transmitting this electrical charge down the axon. Now, once this is more positively charged, guess what? It wants to go back to being less positively charged right, because it always wants to get back into equilibrium. And so what's going to happen then is these positive ions are then going to be pushed out, but not before it starts to pull in these positive ions as it moves down the axon, right? So as it moves down, they get pulled in, they get, they get rotated out essentially. And that moves the electrical charge all the way down to the uh, presynaptic terminal then. And that's a function of um, potassium and sodium ions that are going to change places across the membrane. Okay. Now, once this charge gets down to the presynaptic terminal, what happens? The action potential reaches the presynaptic terminal, then what's that? 
Yeah, so the neurotransmitters are going to be released because the vesicles are going to fuse with the membrane of the uh, presynaptic terminal. And it's going to stimulate the um, release of those neurotransmitters. And that's the end of that. And then the whole thing starts over again. You get a charge at the axon hillock. It reaches threshold, generates the action potential. The action potential moves down, stimulates the presynaptic terminal membrane, fuses with the vesicles, lets the neurotransmitters out, so on and so forth. And this is happening billions and billions and billions, that's my Carl Sagan impression, uh, of times, you know, an hour. I think I could say that. You know, think of, think of all of the complex things that have to happen to let me do this. All of the complex chains of neurotransmission, action potentials, chemicals changing places, right? All this stuff we're talking about happens so fast and we take it for granted so much. But it really is amazing. I would say amazing, but I don't want to say that on the podcast. Um, it really is. It really is. I would call it a miracle if I were more of a religious person. I just did. Um, questions on this? This is really pretty complex stuff. So. I don't get into too much detail here, like electrical gradients and con concentration gradients, because there's concentration gradients that are pushing things apart, and then there's this potassium sodium pump that you know keeps it in, in equilibrium and stuff. But it's all that's all more than you need to know. This is the really fundamental stuff here, yeah. It's both. It has both potassium and sodium. Uh, the, this, I don't want to go into too much detail, but uh, the deal is that it keeps um, it keeps a little. I think it keeps a little more uh, calcium. I think is a negative ion. Am I right about that? I'm not certain what the negative ion here is, but what happens is this sodium potassium pump um, like pumps out uh, two sodium ions for every potassium ion it brings in or something like that, yeah. But yeah, it's all it's a mixture on both sides. Yeah. And um I put this one way sign here because that transmission only goes in that direction. It's never gonna come back the other way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, bad things happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spontaneous combustion. All right. Um, why don't we take a break before we get into this? Um, it's about five of. Can you come back here at five after? And we'll pick this up. Pick up now pick up talking about the process of neurotransmission. As I said, um, we have this action potential that uh, goes to the presynaptic terminal. 
and when the membrane gets the electrical charge, what will happen is these vesicles that are nearby will fuse with the membrane and open up and let these um, little blue balls out, which are like um, neurotransmitter, like symbolized neurotransmitter molecules coming out into the synapse, which is this gap, the synaptic gap between the dendrite and the um, axon terminal. And they're going to travel across this little gap and activate the receptor sites on the um, dendrite, on the receiving dendrite in the postsynaptic terminal. Now, there's a bit of a problem. If you keep releasing all these neurotransmitters into the synapse, uh, what happens? going to get full, right? It's going to get full of neurotransmitters. And if you've got too much neurotransmitter here, these receptor sites are going to be activated too much. And so you're going to get too much activation of the, um, of the dendrite, and you don't want that to happen. So what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to somehow, once these neurotransmitter, once these receptor sites have been activated, these neurotransmitters have to somehow go away so that when we get a new flood of neurotransmitters uh, that there won't be too much in there already. So that's the process of um, reuptake where uh, when the neurotransmitter activates this, the receptor site, it'll be released from the receptor site and it can travel back into the presynaptic terminal. And what will happen then is the... Um, neurotransmitters will be bundled up into vesicles again here in the terminal and be ready to be used again. So it really is like recycling those neurotransmitters, reusing them. The second process that happens to get rid of excess neurotransmitters is that they can be broken down into their constituent parts, right? So these are complex compounds, molecules. And what can happen is they'll get broken down by enzymes. Who's had chemistry? What do enzymes do? They allow for other things to happen. They're a catalyst. Yeah, they're a catalyst. And one of the things they catalyze is oxidation. So um, oxidation is a process where uh, the bonds of molecules get broken. And so now they're not those molecules anymore. They get broken down into their constituent components. So one of those uh, enzymes that breaks down acetylcholine is called acetylcholine esterase. And acetylcholine esterase specifically breaks down acetylcholine to uh, acetone and um, choline. Okay. Monoamine oxidase is another one. Monoamine oxidase breaks down monoamine molecules. Monoamine molecules are like serotonin, norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine. These are neurotransmitters that are involved in uh, mood regulation mostly. And um, so there's a class of drugs called MAOIs, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And those drugs inhibit the action of monoamine oxidase. So now 
we're going to be left with more of this neurotransmitter. It keeps this from getting broken down so much. So it leaves us with more neurotransmitter. And serotonin is one of the neurotransmitters associated with depression, particularly a uh, lack of serotonin. So if we can use a drug to increase the amount of serotonin here, uh, we should help depression. Well, it turns out that that's what this drug does. And MAOIs was one of the first classes of uh, antidepressant medications. They're not used much anymore because they have horrible um, interactions with other drugs and foods. If you, go in, if you go to the pharmacy and you get a prescription or even some over-the-counter stuff, um, I'll, I'll very frequently you'll see a warning on there, do not take if you're taking MAOIs because they have a lot of interactions with other drugs and foods. So yeah, so here's a, here's a case, MAOI drugs is a case where we're actually, you know, changing the way that your neurotransmission process works in your um, brain chemistry. Yeah. Uh, similarly, reuptake, there's a class of neuroantidepressants called uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And those inhibit the reuptake of the serotonin molecules, okay? So similarly, um, either way, we can wind up with more in the, in the synapse. The SSRIs are used more now uh, than the other classes of antidepressants. Okay. So let's move now uh, to begin to introduce the lab uh, exercise we're going to do today. Can you take out um, the lab sheet that I um, gave you last time? Does anybody not have one? Needs one? I've got some extra copies up here if you don't have it. Um, so we're going to, um, I'm just going to do a little bit of introduction to what we're going to talk about in terms of the lab. This is a diagram of an axon and how it innervates or how it um, activates muscle tissue. So this is an actual axon coming in here and branching off. And where it branches off and comes up to the junction with the muscle tissue, that's the axon there. The, I'm sorry, that's the axon terminal. And so an action potential is going to come down this axon, get to the axon terminal, and it's going to release a neurotransmitter. And that neurotransmitter is going to cause this muscle fiber to uh, contract. And what we're going to be able to do in the lab is we're going to be able to measure the electricity that's generated from that contraction. There's a very small amount of electricity that um, the muscles generate as they contract, and that's what we'll be measuring. And we can't measure the electricity from just one muscle fiber. Well, you can, but you have to like stick a probe inside it and stuff. And that's way beyond us. So what we're going to do is we're going to measure the electrical activity from a bundle of muscle fibers, a whole bunch of these things together. So the action potential comes down here, releases the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which uh, causes these contractions. And uh, then... Once the contraction's done, the acetylcholine is going to break down. So again, here's how it works. In this case, um, you're going to think in your brain, um, 
I need to clench my fist in this case, in the case of the lab we're going to do. Um, the action potential is going to travel through your neurons in your brain to your spinal cord. It's going to travel down your spinal cord. The spinal cord is then going to activate one of your somatic nerves that's going to go down your arm, in this case the uh, median and the, I think the median nerve and maybe the ulnar nerve. So these uh, somatic nerves are going to go down your arm and it's going to propagate that action potential through that somatic nerve axon, which is going to run down your arm and connect with the muscle in your arm. And at that point, as I said, it's going to release acetylcholine and then the postsynaptic receptors in the muscle cell are going to be activated by the acetylcholine and that activation is going to kick off the muscle cell contraction and then the acetylcholine is going to be released by the uh, receptor and then it's going to get broken down by acetylcholine esterase. And then the whole thing has to happen all over again to keep that muscle contracted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You take it for granted, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you don't know about it, yeah. How complex it is, yeah. Okay, so um, on your labs, um, I give you a little bit of uh, information about skeletal muscle tissue function. So I say basically what I say here, um, and essentially what we're going to do with the uh, biopack unit, this electrical unit, it's going to measure that small amount of electricity that's generated by those contracting uh, muscle fibers. Um, so the first thing you're going to have to do at this point is to propose some sort of a hypothesis based on what we know previously or what you know now about how muscles work. Um, and on the second page, I say um, this experimental, what I'm going to have the participant do is they're going to sit here and they're going to clench their dominant arm and their non-dominant arm, their fist, I'm sorry, fist of their dominant arm and the fist of their non-dominant arm as hard as they can three times. And we're going to measure how much electrical activity is going on. And that's going to give us, excuse me, a rough approximation of how much clench strength they have. Um, now I say the experimental procedure will yield averages of muscle tension levels um, for the dominant arm and the non-dominant arm. Uh, prior research on the effect of hand dominance on grip strength has yielded mixed results. There's a general rule that the grip strength of the dominant hand is about 10% more than the non-dominant hand which has been supported in several studies. Some studies, though, a few studies, I should say, um, have found this true only for right-hand dominant individuals, and then a few other studies have found it true only for left-hand dominant individuals. So essentially, as part of this experiment, you're going to be trying to um, add a little bit of data to whether this is the case for both right and left hand dominant individuals, just left hand, just right hand, or whatever, right? Um, 
So when you propose your hypothesis, I say, you might think about one or more of the following. What differences would you expect between the dominant and non-dominant arms, right? What reasons would you propose to account for those differences? And do you believe that right or left-handedness will have an effect? So um, you might address all three of those questions um, in the hypothesis. And then when you're done with the hypothesis, we'll do the um, data measurement. Um, now, what I'll suggest to you, you can do, you can write up the hypothesis by yourself if you want, if you're a, you know, if you're a solo kind of worker. Um, if you want to work with you, you're welcome to do that too. So um, feel free to work together. I'll give you about five minutes to um, figure out. And then we'll... Uh,